This is On the Fence Physio, a project designed to drive discussion around those gray topics in physiotherapy. If a professor ever answered your question with, it depends, this is where you want to be. We might not figure out the correct answer, but we will try to answer the question in every single possible way. This is a discussion forum directed at healthcare providers around issues in physiotherapy, but we also welcome viewpoints from patients. That being said, this podcast is not medical advice. If you are looking for legitimate medical advice, seek out a legitimate licensed medical provider. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of On the Fence Physio, the only PT podcast where it depends gets dunked on by how, when, and why. I am your humble host, Andy Wiseman, physio by day and second best sixth man, and I am joined by my co-host, a lights-out shooter from outside the arc, Matthew Owens. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm doing great here in the Hoosier State where basketball grows here. If any of you are Pacers fans, that was our motto last year. We had some corn uh, put into the the gold and navy of the team's uh, you know logo. So I mean, we're all about basketball here. Nothing but net. Great. So you like- all day. Like the new intro where we are going to take on a more sporty tone, like uh, maybe a little spicy, maybe sporty spice. Sporty spice. <laughs> That's right. Well, so what's our topic today, Andy? And our 190s listener. Um, <laughs> so our topic for tonight, we are on the fence about company incentives. How do you attract new staff to your practice? How do you keep valuable staff, veteran staff, from leaving? And which one do you spend more on? We wanted to uh, reach out, get thoughts from our um, intrepid Twitter followers. We got a couple of interactions from different people at different steps in their career. Um, I kind of wanted to get some of uh, our own thoughts out there. Um, I know that when I was first looking at jobs, I was a new grad, and I was super excited to get a job. I had never had a job that made as much money as physical therapy. I was a grad student living on uh, ramen and you know ketchup packets I had taken from the uh, cafeteria, and uh, I was ready ready to start making a paycheck. So didn't I will they, say that pay made a big <laughs> yeah. Didn't didn't they accuse you of stealing some of those little rat hearts from our lab? Uh, I should not put that in recording, but. Uh, I will say the rats are my friends, not food. <laughs> I don't know, rat heart ramen is. For anybody who hasn't had the opportunity, are very, very cuddly and nice. And even when you make them very, very ill for science, they still love you. Remember, we so, had Michael, to say with the basketball thing, we had Michael Jordan as one of our lab rats. He was yeah, a champ. Number 23. <laughs> he never touched the coils. Never touched the coils. He was, he was the man. Uh, so, so Michael. money, so money was a driving factor in your first job oh, choice. Oh, money was money was definitely a big factor, and one of the uh, you know a lot of PT jobs out there are salary based, right? So, one job that interests me was one that was actually hourly because I kind of thought like, ooh, hourly. That means if I work extra, if I you know like show up for work early, if I stay late, you know like I'm going to get compensated. Because one of the things I heard is like, ooh, salary employees, you know, you're putting in more than forty hours. But you don't get compensated for more than forty hours. So I'm like, ooh, I'll do, I'll do an hourly job. Well, 
that is true. And if you do work more hours, you know, you do get paid more. But with hourly jobs, you start getting some other pressures from your employer, um, namely like, oh, hey, uh, so your patient, they, uh, they, they decided not to show up for their appointment. They canceled. So can you clock out, please? You know, even if you're sitting there doing your documentation or you're busying around the clinic or maybe, you know, you ran your other patient over a little bit, kept them a little later. You know, sometimes you get that pressure to, oh, you should clock out. I'm like, oh, you know, lunchtime, you should clock out. Oh, it's a snow day. You know, we had some, a bunch of cancellations. So you just clock out, you know, like. And then you start seeing, well, actually, maybe maybe this is a little awkward. Maybe this is a little weird, you know, sometimes when you're like, eh, now I'm like incentivized to try to make patients come to appointments, even if it is like an additional burden for them. If you're on the phone with the patient, they're like, yeah, you know, my, uh, my mom just hasn't been feeling well and I don't really want to leave her alone today. And you're like, no, 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 come into PT, come into PT. I need the money. <laughs> it's, you know, a weird spot, right? So. Um, I would definitely, you know, say like, hey, salary has some pros, salary has some cons, hourly has some pros, hourly has some cons. Uh, are there any other like uh, ways you can get incentivized? You know, paid per patient is that like a that's a way, right? That's the thing. Uh, what's our friend over at Graston? Um, yeah, Mike, right? Doesn't he gets paid mm -hmm. per patient at least with one of the companies that he worked for? That was part of his contract, so there was some incentive there where he was getting paid per visit. So that is the thing. Line them up, you know, just put them out the door in a queue. I'll just see as many as I can and get them through. That's swip, right. Swip, swip. I don't know what sound a Graston tool makes. For you listening at home, I moved my hand like I'm using a Graston tool. Was that a, a was that the the J stroke, or was that, that the fascial spiral? Copyright. You cannot you cannot show that in a public thing oh, that we had to pay for that technique. Sorry, I, I mentioned the word fascial spiral. <laughs> no one heard that. That's M two. <laughs> of course, inspire your fascia. Just yeah, no one heard yeah, that. My my fascia only grows in spirals. So if you had to choose right now, spot back here. <laughs> if you had to choose right now, salary versus hourly versus a third option, what would you choose? Yeah, I'd pick the salary because it ends up just being simpler because, you know, like you don't have to worry about clocking in, clocking out. You don't have to worry about being incentivized to see more patients, see fewer patients. Uh, you don't have to worry about your cancels more than your boss worries about your cancellation rate. So I, I'm kind of happier in the salary model, but I can see why some people would choose other models. And if you're in a cash based practice, obviously you're getting paid per patient because, you know, they're paying you for the visit. So like, you know, that's perfectly fine too. And if that's the one that makes you happy, I just think that when we start getting into financial incentives that drive you to make decisions based on, um, income versus, you know, like patient care decisions, you know, sometimes those things line up and it's all hunky dory, right. But sometimes there's a disconnect between the two and that's where we have an ethical dilemma, but this isn't the ethics episode. This is the uh, company incentive episode. So in some companies, <laughs> Or I say some companies uh, will do a hybrid of salary and hourly. Um, if you work over your um, salaried hours or come in outside of those hours, they will sometimes pay typically what is termed gap time, where you get your hourly rate um, from your salaried you know, average um, on top of your salary. So. You could have both, and that's something else you can ask a company about when they're right. recruiting you is if there's options for those things as well. 
There was a uh, travel PT company that we brought in to our program um, when we were students to talk about how they do their hiring recruiting. Obviously, a lot of people will do these lunch and learn kind of things when you're a student. Um, but he uh, brought some honesty. I think it was Aspen, uh, I think is what the company was called. Um, it was, yeah. Travel Physical Therapy. And the uh, owner of that company said, like, hey, a lot of these uh, companies will try to incentivize you, you know, you students, right, new grads, soon to be new grads, with things like, hey, we're going to give you this much money for continuing ed, or we're going to give you this much money for, you know, like a gym membership, or we're going to give you this much money. And he said, literally, all that money is coming out of the same pot. This is the money that they would just give you. But by them earmarking different things, it actually gives you a little less flexibility with it. It's not like, you know, like that money is channeled differently. Like you get more money because there's separating out and continuing it. So he's like, if I just give you the whole pot and say, like, I'm not incentivized. If you want to do continuing ed, use any of the money I'm giving you. If you want to do something, use your money how you want it to. And I kind of appreciated that honesty. It's like, yeah, you know, if you really think about it, it's like if they set aside $1,000 of your, you know, what you could be making in your salary and say, huh, that's continuing ed money. And then one year you only spend 800 bucks on continuing it. I don't know how you'd only spend 800 bucks. Maybe you only went to half of them a class, <laughs> but it was, it was, you had a deal on it, right? But uh, maybe you don't spend it all. And then the company literally gets your $200 that they would have had to pay you if you they hadn't earmarked it for continuing ed money. Or maybe you just don't feel like filling out the lengthy reimbursement form and you forget about it and you don't have all the receipts for your gas and your travel and then you're just out. It's almost like, uh, you know, when people give you, you know, when company, uh, business sell gift cards, because they know not everybody's going to use every penny on that gift card and they end up ahead. <laughs> I think it, has a, it was an interesting concept, especially when you talked about it from the opposite perspective. The one thing I do like about some of those earmarked monies, especially if you use them, is that it's non-taxable income. Um, on the flip side of it, the issue is if you're getting a merit-based raise every year, it's like one, two, three percent. Three percent of a hundred thousand dollars is a lot more than three percent of sixty-five thousand um, dollars. And over the course of time, if you could continue those raises, maybe you'd make it up in taxes. I don't know. That'd be something to ask an accountant. But that's one of the things yeah, I've thought about with some of those monies is like, all right, I get this much from continuing yet. I'm going to count that kind of like it's part of my salary. I'll, I probably use it anyway, and I don't get taxed on it, which is nice. Who says they're not taking the tax out ahead of time? Because your company is, again, it's the same pot of money. You know, like maybe they're you know, pre-factoring in that oh, tax yeah. for so you. Know, like 2000 instead of 3000 <laughs> or something. I don't know. At least it feels yeah. better since I'm not paying the tax like directly. Oh, you're not paying the tax. You can't yeah. see it. Yeah, see I'd rather it. just see it. I'd rather just have all the monies and like let me decide what I'm going to do with it rather than being told what to do with it. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm in the wrong political party. I don't like being told what to do with my money. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like that. That's a good, good point. So besides salary, what were some other things that you thought were important when you first started looking for a job? And then what's changed now? Um, oh my gosh, I you know walked into uh, the clinic that I ended up working for and I was like, what is so pretty in here? It had nice, you know, like wooden floors, wooden laminate floors. It had one wall that was all of these like glass brick let in all this like light, a bunch of windows. It had a running trail out behind it. I was like, oh, it's just so pretty. I could see myself working here. Look, they got 
gadgets and gadgets and gizmos, all kinds of fun things. I was like, that's where I want to be. They have fun things. Now I look at it as like, okay, you know, like having all of the toys doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a better job. It just means that you have a clinic that's either been around long enough to collect all these things um, or your clinic owner likes to go uh, bargain shopping and found a uh, isokinetic machine that actually was broken, didn't actually actually work, <laughs> set it in the clinic so it looks nice. No one ever uses it because it doesn't work. It just is a, it's like a showpiece. <laughs> nice. uh, and then sometimes, you know, like all the gadgets and gasmo, you know, gizmos that you're like super excited about as a new grad, you, as you get to maybe learn a little bit more of the literature out there, you're like, huh, these, uh, these you know, grade five cold lasers really don't do a whole lot, but man, it, uh, it looks cool, makes some funny beep beep sounds, you know, <laughs> and you're like, eh, it's going to sit there now. <laughs> Collect some dust. It looks cool. So you would have said the the shiny new toys were neat at the beginning, and now it's like, oh, maybe I don't need all that. Yeah, and rather than um, my you know manager, my uh, employer, you know, like spending money on that stuff, maybe they could have, you know, spent that money otherwise. Maybe they could have uh, got another PT, so that I didn't have to see as many patients. You know, like. <laughs> built up staffing a little bit more. That would have been cool. That would have been cool. Uh, I like yeah. our um, good old friend Gary Gray um, of the Gray Institute when we went to his class. Friend of the show. Friend of the show. I'm sure he is. He would, I wish you'd try to get him on. He would definitely come and talk. <laughs> our podcast would be much longer than 30 minutes, so I guarantee you that much. He uh, said that the gym of the future is an empty room. Mm-hmm. Nothing else. Yeah, he he is a sensationalist for sure. I do think you need to have some stuff. I think it is uh, next to impossible to do our job without some stuff because you need to be able to replicate some tasks. And uh, you know, if you're going to assess people's function, you need to have things, you know, objects to manipulate, you know, that would replicate, you know, function. I do think that's a necessary thing. Um, I do think that. Um, Progressing patients through their rehab is sometimes made more efficient by certain pieces of equipment. Absolutely. Um, and that having equipment does have an effect. Um, I can't cite the paper right now, but there was an interesting paper that had uh, patients come in for their first evaluation into a clinic that had no equipment and then into a clinic that had um, fake equipment. It looked like they had a bunch of stuff, but none of it was operational. And in neither case did they use any of the equipment. But the people who came into the clinic where they had stuff or the appearance of stuff felt like they were going to have a better outcome. They rated, they predicted their outcome would be better than the people who went to the clinic with no, with nothing in it. That's so awesome. I, I don't want to, you know, argue with Gary Gray about that, but I think patients think that more stuff means better care too. So I don't, I don't feel too bad for them feeling that way because as a new grad coming out right out of PT school, I was like, ooh, more stuff means I'm going to be a better PT. Yeah, I like that. I but have not a, heard that study, but yeah. anecdotally in my experience, um, the clinic where I work is roughly three to four times the size of most typical yeah. outpatient clinics. And that's people come in and they go, oh, wow, this place is big. You have this stuff and yeah anecdotally yeah. it's true they're like oh yeah this is a good place because i see you've got all these 
gadgets and gadgets and what's its yeah. lore. Oh, yeah. People love this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I, I, I think that is something, uh, a kind of a trap to look for. But also, like, again, like I'm having this is like, obviously, you need to have some stuff, and having stuff does make an effect on patient outcomes as well. So maybe rather than just being impressed by the stuff, maybe ask some questions about the stuff. Ask the employer, like, hey, what do you value? What have you spent money on in the clinic? You know, like, and that might give you some ideas of what your employer values, you know, what things they find important or how well they even understand the things they have. Yeah, because sure. maybe they think that uh, maybe they think that the uh, laser adds an extra oxygen into the Krebs cycle. And I wish I wasn't quoting a former employer of mine, but uh, I was like, I don't know if you can just add an extra oxygen to the Krebs cycle and that makes a difference. <laughs> hey, more power Sounding to you good. if you can't. Sounds good. Yeah. What's a Krebs, Krebs cycle? cycle? I forget. Nobody remembers how to write that out anymore. So <laughs> ATP gets we had thirteen. Yeah, I I forget 36. all that Thirty six. Thirty six ATPs costs some though. That's costs some. Yeah, all right, that, so we've got that. so we've got salary, we've got equipment. What about the people, Andy? Did you did you have any concerns about who you'd be working with? I have never cared about that. I have always just said like, well, I. I will make friends with them if they're nice, and if they're not, I will be talking with patients anyway. So I have never cared who I work with. Um, this, uh, the recent events of the world, you know, many as they are, have uh, made some uh, glaring discrepancies between me and certain other people, what they value, what they think is important, what they uh, believe. And now I might find myself caring a bit more. Um, I might find it uh, valuable to ask my next employer, you know, like, hey, do you guys have a policy on uh, all your employees being vaccinated? I'd, I'd prefer it if all my coworkers were vaccinated for COVID and other things, really. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, you know, like, just, you know, maybe ask that question nowadays, you know, like, but as far as like the quality of the people that I've worked about, I haven't, I haven't really cared about that. Do you, uh, have you been a, uh, looking into who you're going to be working with? Are you a people person? Though? I am. And that's something I respect in a good way about you, Andy, is that no matter what job you've been in, you still do your own thing. And that's a fairly rare quality, I think. So for me, it was, I, it was important to be around people or in, in an environment where I was going to be mentored and pushed in the right direction. Um, I am a people person I like to please people and if everybody I'm around is trying to have me do the wrong thing you know that peer pressure it's gonna it's gonna pull me in the wrong direction um, and there's a lot of good advice about trying to uh, put yourself with people who will encourage you um, to be involved and do things that are important so whether that's things like going to CSM uh, doing podcasts listen to research going to residency not using frivolous treatments, being involved in your local APTA chapter. Those are all things I think I value in my uh, work environment. And I'd rather not have to um, justify why I'm doing those things or fight against my 
you know, employer or coworkers um, to do. I think things are important. Whereas Andy, he doesn't care. He just does what he he thinks is right anyway. <laughs> so great. It's good, good. So I'll, I'll, challenge, I'll challenge you on that then. Uh, so you value those things. You want to find people to work with that have those values. How much time do you need to spend with somebody before you can know if their values truly align with your own? I would say more than your interview or shadowing process. So you really don't know until you take the job um, what people's true values are. I think you can get a little bit of an idea, but um, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in interview processes. And now as someone who does mm -hmm. interviews, you can figure out fairly quickly what someone is looking for in a job. And depending on how you want to present yourself as an employer, it's fairly easy to match, you know, code switch, if you will, um, to meet that person's expectations, even if it's not necessarily uh, genuine. Okay. So I like that. Could you come up with any strategy or any, um, you know, like trick to maybe uh, break through the smoke and mirrors of the interview? to sidestep that uh, code switching that uh, employers that are trying to get you to come work for them maybe might do? Is there a way you could trap them into maybe admitting at least some of their values, you know, a way that you could catch them, per se, if they had values that didn't line up with your own? Do you have any magical questions in particular? Because I think the big thing as a person being interviewed is to make sure that you're not the only one answering questions, but that you're also asking questions to your employer. Yeah. So what questions would you ask to see if you could uh, draw out some of your employer's values without trying to let them know that you're trying to see if they line up with your, your own? Yeah. So there are things about metrics. Um, what are your thoughts on um, productivity requirements? What do you guys do for continuing education? Um, what uh, is your... I love that. Hold on, hold on. Go back to that. Like, the way that you asked that, like, what do you do for continuing education? Not saying, hey, do you have continuing education? Do you offer continuing education? Do you value continuing education? You didn't ask those questions where they can just go, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You said, what do you do for continuing education, right? Now they're going to have to explain. They have to be like, Oh yeah, so we partnered with this uh, company that comes in with a gun that goes zzzz, vibrates really hard, and they want to sell those to us. So we let them do continuing education for free, teach us how their zzzz gun feels really good for patients, and they're going to give us a deal. <laughs> yeah, I like that the open-ended question that you would ask your patient, right, versus that. Oh, uh, you know, do you think that one-on-one -on -one patient care is an important part of your practice? Uh, yes, yes, we do. Yes. <laughs> Like, oh no, how many, how many, what's my time allotment for an initial eval and a follow-up appointment? And am I expected to see more than one patient at a time? And do we have rehab aids and those types of things? And what's interesting with those questions too that I'm asking is, I do think there are physical therapists who have different uh, perspectives and values and can provide really good care within those questions, right? It's not all, it doesn't all have to be the same but you can find a good fit. So if you're someone who, you know, needs one-on-one -on -one time and longer treatments, that's what you're looking for, you know, see what they answer, right? If you're somebody who's like, oh no, I like to be busy and I don't mind delegating or I don't think that's unethical or I do think it's unethical, you know, those are things that you're gonna to wanna to find out and stick to your guns and um, 
be comfortable with who you are as a clinician and not feel like you need to switch that to, um, you know, satisfy an employer. Yeah, uh, that is that is great, and uh, I I feel like it could be a whole nother episode <laughs> on its own. But you bringing up like the uh, you know like double booking, how much time is a lot, how much patience you see. I got in a little bit of a Twitter conversation. I don't know if anybody saw this already, but um, with a somebody who came out with a very strong statement of double booking of a patient is always going to be a detriment to patient care and should be avoided at all times. It was like really like hard line. And of course, being on the fence physio, right? I always know that there is a shade of gray to all these things. So I made the argument that's like, all right, so your schedule is already full. Your new patient you just evaluated is a you know mother of three, single mother of three. She is working two jobs to make ends meet, and she can only come in at that 6 p.m. appointment slot that already has a follow-up in it. So do I tell her, eh, tough, tough luck, you're going to have to find your PT somewhere else, or do I say, all right, hey, I'm going to work even with my other 6 o'clock patient. We're going to work through these things together. I'll try to get a tech in here so we can get some help, and I double book that slot because that allows access to care. Access to care. If you're in a place where you're seeing only, you know, cash paying, you know, yuppie, <laughs> yuppie uh, patients who can uh, afford that one hour one-on-one -on -one care, awesome. You do that. You serve that population. But some of some people do have to work with the populations that can't afford that. You know, when you have those Medicaid patients, when you have the Medicare patients that you know can't afford to go outside that have to use their insurance because they can't pay out of pocket for these things. It would be too much of a cost. And their injury is keeping them from getting back to work. Are we just going to deny them access to care because we're not willing to potentially double a patient on the schedule? I'm like, yeah, see, I agree that it is a detriment to care. If I can't give you my one-on-one -on -one attention, it's not going to be as good. I guarantee you that. But is my is half of my attention better than none of my attention? Yeah, and that's a, that's a good question. That's a good question. So jumping back onto yeah. the yeah, back, back on that. Hold back that on to the, on that tangent. So this is something. It didn't come up on Twitter, but you said you were going to do this. So I'm going to call you out now. Yeah. I want you to tell me why, as an employer, I want to hire new grads, and that those experienced veteran people that are going to cost me more money aren't worth it. So I think there need to be, so I think my statement more was, I think there need to be PT mills and that, um, you know, people, people do like to hate on, you know, the big giant ATI, right? They are churning and burning. They're picking up all the new grads they can. They burn them out after two years, if that, you know, maybe even less than that. And they're seeing tons and tons of patients, right? I think they are necessary. <laughs> And this might get me a little hate, right? But again, I go back to, all right, we need um, access to care. And these PT mills aren't providing the best care. If you can afford the best care, go get the best care. But these PT mills are doing it in a cost-effective way by paying new grads less, taking on new grads. So their staffing costs are lower, right? Their overhead costs are lower because they're seeing so many more patients under the same, like, roof. You know, they're not blowing up and getting these super fancy gyms with, like, artificial turf and, like, all the fanciest, like, rogue equipment or something like that, right? So they're able to see, and, and then they make up for revenue with, like, patient volume. You see a whole bunch of patients. I think that for new grads, 
that is going to be really hard and you are going to get really tired, but you are going to get tons and tons of reps. You're just going to get repetitions. You're going to start seeing patient after patient after patient after patient. And maybe you won't get some of the uh, more complex patients right. But what you are is you're going to build um, – you're going to build your practice patterns. You're going to get more efficient with doing evaluations because you're just going to be forced to because if your productivity standards are so high, you're going to have to get better at doing your evaluations in a more succinct way. You can't take the kitchen sink approach where you do every special test in your flashcard set. You're going to have to pare it down, which is the sign of an advanced clinician is when you can do pattern recognition rather than taking a systematic approach. Right? So I think they do provide a valuable service. Do I think that they also have problems, right? <laughs> Where patients aren't getting quality care, aren't having good experiences with PT, and aren't getting the outcomes they deserve. Yes, I do think that does happen, but I do think they are a necessary evil within the capitalistic healthcare society that we all have to live and operate in. Okay, so then the follow-up question to that. <laughs> the follow-up question to that. I just defended after... ACI on this podcast. You can't be more on the fence than this. <laughs> <laughs> this is good. I, that should be the tagline of this podcast. Andy says PT mills are necessary and ATI is good. Uh, so the follow-up to that is what I see on the like kind of new grad Twitter, I would say, which we're still uh -huh. a part of, yep. is this argument that really I, – I, 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 they say experience doesn't matter. You as a new grad are generating just as much revenue as the veteran clinician. There's no reason for you to be paid any less than, you know, this person with um, X amount of experience. What is your thought with that? Your um, practice patterns and your outcomes are probably going to be about the same. Really, uh, maybe even better. To be honest, you know, like I am not going to sit here and say like, "Ooh, veteran PTs are definitely going to be a better PT than you because you're a new grad. If you are a stud new grad and you've done your hard work, you've earned a good degree, you've earned your degree, you studied hard in school and maybe you've done some outside things, you are going to be a better PT than most, uh, most veteran PTs that are out there. Like I have no doubt in that. But when it comes to generating revenue, it's not all about how good of a PT you are, how much you know. Sometimes about who you know. If you have, if you've been in a spot for long enough, you start having some providers that start to refer patients directly to you, right? They're like, "Oh, I want you to see my PT that's over at X company," right? They don't say like, "Oh, just go find a PT anywhere." They start to say like, "Oh, go to this PT," right? And you start building relations with referring providers. You start building relations in the community too. You start having patients that are like, oh, my friend said to come to you because they had a good time. My, my, you, you treated my mom. You treated my daughter, right? And when you have, are an experienced PT, you have more of those. You are bringing in more patients. You're generating more revenue. If you generate more revenue, you should be compensated more. So I do think that um, experience is valuable, but only if you've only – basically, I should say it's if you're tenured, right? <laughs> if you've been in that yeah. spot. If you've been with that company long enough, you come with those relations, like that is valuable and you should be compensated for that. And that's something that new grads just might not have. Yeah, I think that's a good point is that really typically as a veteran PT, I think what I value is the relationships they built in a community. Like I really don't know how much it benefits me as a hiring 
um, manager, if I have someone with 15 years of experience who just moved from six states away and knows no one here, you know, they're right. back from a relational standpoint on the same footing as that new grad. Maybe even less if that new grad is from the area, they're moving back, they have family, they know people, yeah. all those types Absolutely. of things. So I think that's something that when you're looking for a job and you're negotiating salaries, you do uh, should understand those things. I think your point about your outcomes and clinical performance is really good. I can't cite the exact article, um, but I remember in residency, my mentor, I think she's now, she was seven years post-grad at that time. She's like, oh, dang, I just read that. Your peak physical therapy, productivity, and like uh, desire to learn and being on top of all the new stuff is somewhere between three to six years. You know, like that's when you're at your best as a physical therapist. It's like, I'm over the hill now, you know, like I'm getting burnt, you know, I'm burned out, stuck in my ways. Uh, so I think that is a good point too. As, as a new grad, you should be on the cutting edge. You're trying to learn, you're doing better, those things. So really like that, what, three to five years, you might be the best you ever will be as a treating clinician. Hopefully not. Um, but it's really important. I think relationally yeah. is good is that's, that's a big thing. It's the relationships you bring to the clinic. Relationships matter. Um, I do think that we need to be better at compensating for advanced certifications because advanced certifications that have been well regulated, right? I'm not talking about the ones where you go to a weekend course, you take a 10 question quiz that everybody passes and you get a certification. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the ones that are well regulated where you're going to like a prometric testing center and sitting through a 300 question exam and you have to recertify it every few years like we need to be compensating better for those so i feel like that's where we're really screwing um our you know th therapists of all ages is that the ones who have actually taken the time to try to advance their practice and become better right we don't know if it actually makes you better but they are making an effort to be better we can agree on that they need to be compensated better. Um, I really think there needs to be a there needs to be a differentiation, and that's why I respect. Um, there are some companies, Cincinnati Children's Hospital was one that have a tiered, um, like, uh, compensation thing. You become like a physical therapist level two if you check off certain boxes, and like advanced accreditation gets you there publishing papers gets you there, taking on students gets you there, and you become like, you level up to physical therapist too, and you're guaranteed to make more money and have more benefits. And then like you can do some even crazier things and get up to physical therapist three, and like it gets even better, right? It's what a, is, it's what a is, track. Uh, what is Dr. Paterno? What, like what level is he? It's like, oh, super, he's super, a, like he 99. Grand wizard, yeah. Grand wizard. Every <laughs> ACL paper ever, Cincinnati Children's Hospital. Mark Paterno. Yeah. No, I, I think that's good. I, had, I didn't know that. I didn't yeah. know that. So you, did you learn about that when you were there on your clinical? Oh, yeah. It was, uh, okay. it was yeah. a hot, hotly contested thing because whenever they changed the requirements a little bit, people that were in like the level two category were like, crap, I need to get like another paper published or I need to get like, or I'm going to lose my level two. Level two. I'm going to go back to level one. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's so, really neat. I yeah, have not heard around. that before. I think that I, I find that interesting. Yeah, um, merit-based, you know, is usually a thing that most people like. It is probably not the most equitable, right, when it comes to promotion and hiring. Um, it is equal. Everybody has equal opportunity to get there, right? But it is definitely not equitable because different uh, 
different groups have had different exposures to different things and may, may or not be as easily able to promote, you know, like single parents will probably have a harder time getting papers published than, you know, dinks like me. Not that I have a paper published, but <laughs> <laughs> you're slacking. I guess I'm on, I'm on too, but I have my name on too. <laughs> I didn't really do a whole lot, but I, I'm there. Michael Jordan, there. Michael Jordan, you were there. Michael Jordan ran, we watched him, we wrote some stuff down, we cleaned up the cages after, right. it was good. Um, Dr. Josh Funk from uh, Rehab to Perform, who is uh, head of that industry, he said that flexible scheduling, gym memberships, community events, 401ks, and variable attire guidelines were the ways that he uh, got new staff and kept his, kept his staff. Ever felt um, constrained by your uh, work's uh, retirement guidelines? Only if I chose the wrong size pants in the store originally. That's that my own fault. But I did like the, the wording of variable attire. I don't even know if that means if it's like, you know, if we're doing like a, a more athlete day, we can wear, you know, like dry fit oh, attire. I, I don't know. Tennis shoe on one foot, a flip flop on the other foot, you know, <laughs> variety. <laughs> right. Well, we see this a lot. Once again, on uh, physical therapy, social media, it's like, oh, what's appropriate to clinical attire? What can I wear? What can I wear? And, you know, we have people say, I wear nothing but dress shoes and no button ups. You need to wear a tie to people saying, oh, no, I wear scrubs or, you know, I wear my gym shorts and a, a clean, non smelly t shirt, I think would be at least. I don't think we've gone to being able to wear smelly t-shirts yet, but maybe, <laughs> maybe. Um, but I do think some of those other fringe you things. You need to relate to your patient. Yeah, I think <laughs> I, I like those other, I like those other fringe things when companies can offer just this little extra, like say, instead of saying like, hey, you have to work Monday, Wednesday, Friday till seven, um, even if it's some fake flexibility and like, hey, we need two late nights and you can choose them. Like that, that's, I would rather hear that than you have to work these certain days, late nights, and it doesn't matter what your kid's practice schedule is or when your other, when your spouse gets home from work, you know, I think flexible, flexibility and knowing that, Hey, I'm going to work these many hours and I will see patients and I will be productive is nice to hear. Oh, that is a hundred percent. Now my new, like most valuable thing is flexibility and scheduling. So the next job I'm looking for. The next, the question I am going to ask is how much determination of my schedule will I get? Because I'm not going to say, "Hey, do you do flexible scheduling?" Because you're just going to say, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." We do. Right? You know, you could you, you can go as far as say, "All right, how many nights per week do you expect me to work? How many am I required to work?" You go into the nitty gritty, like, "Oh, how many early mornings do I need to be there?" Right? But I feel like if you just do open-ended, they're going to have to explain it and they're going to have to explain it thoroughly. So like, and it's, sometimes it's hidden because, um, my current job in the employee handbook, if it look creating your schedule says you will, you can create your own schedule and you, um, can receive advice from your clinic director or your clinic director may advise, right? That's all it says. But there are some un, unwritten rules <laughs> you get, you know, and it's different in different uh, parts of the company. But, you know, sometimes like you need to close. You need to be there at close three nights a week. You need to, you know, like you need to be there to open up three days per week. You know, like there, 
And then sometimes it's negotiable. Sometimes it's not negotiable. You know, like it, you really need to just kind of hair that out. If it's valuable to you, try to ask those hard questions during the interview and be like, all right, so how much flexibility do you, do I truly have? Will, could I write, Hey, I'm going to be here six to one every day. Done. <laughs> oh, that'd be my dream schedule. If I could do six to one every day, I would do it in a heartbeat, but uh, it That's doesn't work with our current model. Six, six days a week? No. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> I was just trying to get you closer to 40 hours as a hiring manager. Like, all right, I can do six to one, but you need to be here every day. All right, no, I, I, so I did that math wrong, didn't I? Uh, six to two is eight hours. There we go. 40. All right, six to two. Six to two, right, no six lunch. To two every day. Yeah, okay, okay. No lunch. Nope. Six to two every day. Can I do that? Can I, do, can I come to your company and do six to two every day? You sure can. <laughs> nice. As long All as somebody right, else is willing to be there later. <laughs> and I think that's Give me a blue polo. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the hard parts that it's. I really don't think. We, you could, should be, and maybe it just makes it easier from a company standpoint when everything's cookie cutter and we have systems and everyone's working the same amount and doing the same stuff, but people have different needs, different stages of life, and as long as you're able to at least staff the clinic for the hours you're open and see patients, I mean, I don't really see the big deal and or the issue and be like, oh, no, no, that won't work because you're not working any late nights and someone else is working too, but as long as they're okay with that, I'd who cares? But some people do. All right. Friend of the show, Dr. Lindsey Durant, um, probably the most famous um, new grad on, on PT Twitter, um, said that she valued um, her job having one-hour sessions, time for documentation built in, and great pay. Sounds good. Maybe in that order. But built-in documentation time. Is that called uh, when your patient's doing three sets of 10, you document while they're doing that? <laughs> what is built-in documentation yeah, time? Do you think that's like uh, they're expected to see the patient for like, I don't know, like say 45 minutes is the is requirement. They have an hour, so they have 15 minutes. There's a 15-minute gap between patients? Oh, that would be that delightful. I would love that. I mean, obviously, they would expect me to keep patients over that 45 minutes so I can get up to 53, get that fourth unit in, you know, <laughs> federal payer. Yeah, but then you still have seven minutes before your next patient shows up to do the uh, to do your documentation. I can get a daily note done seven minutes easy, right? That's that's done. Right? Yeah. Or is your built-in documentation time your hour lunch? Oh, well, if I get paid to eat lunch and do documentation, I can deal with that because an hour lunch I like to take my lunch a little later in the day, and as long as they're cool with that, take my lunch a little later in the day. So most of my notes, you know, have built up, and then I can eat like inhale my food. Well, what I, what I'm calling food at the food at the time because I'm not eating a whole lot for lunch anymore. Thirties. <sighs> um, I get all my uh, notes done over lunch. I take that built-in documentation time, paid lunch, because my lunch is unpaid right now. I do my my notes anyway. Mm -hmm. Welcome to salary life right there. Um, no, that's that, that sounds pretty good. Um, and we don't know, we don't get a number. Yeah. And we don't get a number from Lindsay what great pay is. Um, hey. But I mean, that sounds I'm, pretty I'm good. I'm pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. Yeah. Yep. 
So for new grads out there, students out there that are looking for the next job, do not ask the question, hey, do all your PTs get their notes done? Because of course the employer is going to be like, yeah, of course they do, right? Ask how. Ask how do your employees get their notes done? Because then you're going to be told, oh, well, they have these little rolling kiosks and they're expected to you know, be documenting throughout the day, right? And you're going to be like, oop, well, there we go. They, all, they expect all point of service documentation, which not docking on because I'm a proponent of point of service documentation because I'm the most accurate documentation that's out there. <laughs> but it um, takes away from the therapeutic alliance a little bit. So you have to be careful. Two-edged sword. Um, whereas you might be told, oh, yeah, uh, most of our PTs document their lunch. And then you can ask that follow-up question, well, are they paid for lunch, right? Right. Or they can say like, oh, you know, you can ask follow up how many notes do your PTs take home per day on average, right? To do. Good question to ask. They'll probably say zero, but maybe you'll have to ask one of the actual PTs wandering around. <laughs> get an honest answer. Yeah, I think those are. Maybe they'll good lie points. too because they're trying to get you hired so they can leave, you know? <laughs> Please come here. We, we need your help. No, I think those are all, okay. all those are all really good points. Uh, all really good points. Oh, good. And I think we I'm would. Glad we're making good. I think I would. Points. I would love to. I would. I'd love to hear um, if people have any other thoughts too on those things after listening to this podcast. If you want to go back to that thread and be like, "Oh yeah, by the way, this is important or not important to me now." I like the perspective that you brought today, Andy. Of this is what I thought was important when I first was getting into the job market and mm. now this is how it's changed. Uh, and I think that is a good point that some of the things you value now you might not value in a couple of years. And that can lead mm -hmm. to a job change even if the job was really good for you at the time, you might move on. Not for really any fault of the employer, but just because you grow apart. Yeah. And you know, that like you said, when you know life changes because when you started working you had two kids and now you have what, forty three or so, right? Well, I stopped uh, at five so. to get the basketball team. No, I have I have four. <laughs> um, I think we'll just play a man down. <laughs> um so obviously as life changes your your needs will change. So try not to um lock yourself into a job that seems really good try to give yourself some flexibility down the road because if maybe you need to change your schedule or maybe you need to change how many hours you work or how many patients you see could be helpful for sure all right so what do we want to talk about next on this podcast matt i would love to hear from everyone what your best treatments are uh, for femoral acetabular impingement do you, as a physical therapist, think that surgery That's pretty hip -topper. is the way to go for conservative care? And if you're doing conservative care, what type of care? Are we doing clamshells? Clamshells seem to be this thing. I've kind of missed out on whatever this trending thing is on Twitter. Like, there's, I guess there's a big thing about clamshells. Um, do you still like clamshells or not for your FAI patients? Um, so I want to know, what is the best treatment? The best. No gray. What is the best treatment for FAI? And then I would like to know the worst treatment. What is the worst thing you could do for FAI patients? 
And we'll talk about everything in between because we are on the fence physio. All right. Thank you for joining us on our friendly debate around a great topic in physiotherapy. To see our next discussion on FAI, follow us on Twitter at OTF Physio. And you can follow us individually. Matt and I can be found at, at Owens underscore DPT and at Wiseman DPT. Remember that when it comes to physical therapy, it is okay to be on the fence.